0: Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Megan Buntine about succession planning and how boards should consolidate and strengthen. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today. For me, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to Elders past and present. I acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and that this land was never ceded. I support the Uluru Statement from the heart and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Megan. Megan is on the boards of Into Our Hands Community Foundation, Alpine Valleys Community Leadership, and More Care Services. And she was formerly on the boards of Alexandra District Health, Rivers and Rangers Community Leadership, Victorian Public Tenants Association, and King Lake Rangers Foundation. Megan has always had an interest in governance since she was a teenager and tapped on the shoulder to be the treasurer for her venture crew. Her work for government only increased her interest in good governance and the areas that underpin it. She now works and volunteers in the governance space, both through paid work and not-for-profit organisations, helping their boards and executives strengthen their organisational governance, as well as sitting on not-for-profit boards herself. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Megan. Thanks, Helia. It's lovely to be here with you this morning. Oh, So, Megan, I am very keen to talk about succession planning, and indeed it's been a topic in the Facebook group recently. But before we do that, as always, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. So tell me, where were your parents born, and do you know where your ancestors are from?
1: Yeah, interesting question. Dad was born down at Warrnambool, And mum was born in Yarram, so very much a country Victorian background. My heritage is Anglo-Australian, so the Buntine clan came out from Scotland in 1838 and ended up in Gippsland. So dad did a, a lot of genealogy, so I sort of feel I've got lots of heritage around Ireland and Scotland in particular. But it's been really interesting in recent years. I've also discovered I've got Aboriginal relatives. That's not Aboriginal heritage, but Aboriginal relatives. So I'm really exploring that aspect of our family tree, not my direct line of heritage. And it's something I'm really, really pleased to have that connection to. Because like you, I support reconciliation and I think we need to do more to support our Indigenous country folk. Yeah, I could not agree more.
0: So interesting. I I think that family genealogy, my father did a lot around it as well for his side, which is back in Denmark. But it's so interesting knowing
1: some of that family history. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's it's interesting. Whenever I go to Scotland, I've, I have that sense of almost feeling like I'm home. And I don't know whether that's a constructed sense of memory or whether it's something that's that's sort of real in your DNA. Uh, they talk about DNA memory and things like that now. So I really appreciate how Indigenous people feel about their country and that connection to to country. Even where I live on Tongarong country at Buxton and we're in the foothills of the beautiful Cathedral Ranges there and I feel that real pull to, to the country and the landscape and we're in the area that was affected by the Black Saturday bushfires. So after that occurred, I really felt the change in the landscape. It just felt really damaged and almost dead. So seeing it come back from that has been great to see. And I guess it's, it's made me realise how connected I actually am with the country in which I live now too.
0: Yeah, well it's it's interesting. I think I don't know, we're we're less connected with country, you know, we live in apartments or whatever it may be or we just we move away from feed on the ground sort of connection to country and I know connection to country is a whole lot more than that, but somehow there is a disconnect I think sometimes and just being able to take that moment and reconnect is it's a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, and I think for Anglo Australians we often don't realize it until it's gone. Mm. That was certainly my experience yes. at any rate.
0: So we know your your parents and your ancestry and where you are now, where were you born
1: and where did you grow up and what about any siblings you might have? So I was born in St Andrews Hospital in East Melbourne. It was my younger brother, there's just the two of us and mum and dad moved into their house in Ringwood where I grew up about, they moved in, in the Anzac day before I was born so mum was quite pregnant and mum still lives there now.
0: Oh wow, oh my partner's parents still live in the house where he was born and it's just kind of beautiful to think of it yeah just just that same spot we go and stay there because they're over in Adelaide we go and stay there quite regularly it's quite lovely so do you know about the traditional owners or the first people of where you grew up
1: so I grew up in North Ringwood in uh, Wurundjeri country and I guess back then when I was at school back in the 80s uh, it wasn't something that we really learned about a lot So it's been in more recent years and particularly since I've been living in Tangarong country that I've sought out that information and I think nowadays there's much more information around than there perhaps was 20 years ago when I was looking for that information when we first moved up there. So, you know, sitting in the the foothills of the Cathedral Ranges, which is such a beautiful place, I I often looked at that and thought I can't imagine that the Indigenous folk who lived here wouldn't have had a connection with this because it's such a stunning more inspiring sort of environment to be in. So, yeah, I was really curious to find out out more about that. It, you're right. It is much more accessible these days.
0: Yeah, I also grew up in Wurundjeri country up in Diamond Creek, but never would have known that at the time, I don't think. So how many
1: languages do you speak? Well, I speak English, obviously, but I speak a little bit of French, enough to get me around in France, but I wouldn't call it fluent. When I was a kid at school, I loved languages. In high school, I did French, Latin and Indonesian and particularly enjoyed French and did that for six years. And my dream was to have a gap year after high school and go and live in France for for a year and really consolidate that language. But I went to uni instead and then started working. So it never really happened. So I'm sort of I'm going to France from time to time and I figure I'm doing my gap year in bits um, over my lifetime. And maybe when I'm retired, I might go and live there for a while.
0: Exactly. Do it later. (laughs) So you touched on this earlier in a way about kind of feeling at home in a way when you go to Scotland, but where do you feel your place or your home is?
1: Look, where we are in terms of where we live at the moment in at Buxton in the foothills of the beautiful Cathedral Ranges, I really feel on a day-to-day basis that that's home for me. That's more home for me than, than Ringwood is now. And I think they'll probably take me out of there in a pine box. Not a good thing to think about, but also a lovely thing to think about
0: in some ways. If that's the home, that's a beautiful place to be leaving as well in that way.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we came to that land when we just had 40 acres of vacant land and we built a house and put a lavender farm in and built B&B cottages and really built our life there. So that's where I've put down roots, I guess, in my early adulthood and I can see myself being there for many, many years to come. Oh, I'll have to swing by Buxton, I think, and take a look. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank
0: you. Thank you for giving us some of the background. It's always good to know a bit more about the people we have in front of us. And it's interesting, you and I have crossed paths many a time and I haven't heard some of those stories. So it's fantastic to hear some of that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. But let's move to succession planning, the topic of the day. So, you know, succession planning, consolidating boards, strengthening boards. From your experience, where should we
1: start this? Look, I think succession planning is something that a lot of organisations either don't do at all or don't do particularly well, and it's something that I've really noticed both in the time that I've, over the many, many years that I've been sitting on boards and management committees myself, but also since I've been working in that space, and I think that the the place to really start is A, recognising that it's important. So many organisations, I, I go along to AGMs and there's this flurry of paper and they're still signing up people to nominate for their, their board or the committee, and it's like, guys, this is not the way to be doing this. Being proactive, giving yourself plenty of time, recognizing this is an important thing, that's the place to start. I talk to many organizations who, who haven't even really thought about it. And I've often found myself in the organizations that I've sat on boards and committees of management for, you know, people are still sitting in those roles after many, many years. They don't want to be, there. they're burnt out, they're stale, they're not doing the best for the organisation necessarily and they're not doing the best for themselves. So I think it's really important to recognise that succession planning is part of our good governance and it's what we do to bring in new blood and new ideas and and that new enthusiasm and freshness over time.
0: So is is there from... One of the boards that you've been on, is there a story that you can share about succession planning, either where it went well or didn't go well, that might help us learn about the importance of it?
1: Yeah, look, I think most of the committees and boards that I've been on over the years have just, in a way, they've sort of fumbled along as well. I think where it really became apparent to me as a good example was when I was on the board of Alexandria District Health. And possibly because being a health service, our board recruitment went through the state government process. State government oversaw a lot of that. That sort of had come in as a result of terrible issues that actually took place up around Backers Marsh, where they found that the board hadn't necessarily been terribly proactive around their good governance. So the state government took a bigger role in ensuring that that succession planning and recruitment was done a lot better. So at the time that I came onto the Alexandria District Health Board, that process was already in place. So in the the years that I was on that board, I sat on the recruitment committee both times and it was great to be part of that process where it happened well in advance. It was a really proactive approach. It was a the net was thrown out widely to attract potential candidates. There was a thorough process that we went through and we got some really good outcomes. We got some great people for our board and for a little country town, really, that there's not a lot of population around. You might be struggling to get people who are willing to put their hand up or who've got the skills base that you're looking for. It was great to see that we were getting good quality skills-based board members applying to be part of our board. So that was a that was a really positive experience for me. And I think, you know, I've taken that with me going forward from there and, and both in the work that I do but on the boards that I sit on now taking that really proactive, you know, giving ourselves three to six months in advance to go through a process and throw the net out wide and and really target who are the people who are going to add value and what are the skills we're looking for. And not just putting a, an ad on your website or an ad on your Facebook page or an add on ethical jobs, but really being proactive, going out there, tapping people on the shoulder, networking with people, having coffees with people and talking to people about it. Because I think the thing is when you, you put it out there without doing the legwork, you don't necessarily get terribly much response. I mean, I think we've probably all had experiences where we've, you know, sent out an email to our network looking for a board member and all you get back is crickets.
0: Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, look, if we can, let's take each of those steps. I think what I heard do it well in advance and you said that's three to six months and be proactive. So, I want to come back to that and find out more about it. Be really targeted around what the skills are that you need, throw the net widely and you've given some tips there, have a really thorough process and that will lead to good outcomes. So, can we just dig into each of those steps a little bit? So, doing it well in advance and being proactive in that three to six months in advance that a board is thinking about their succession planning, what happens in there? Like for your one at Alexandra, what did that
1: actually look like? I might even use another example that a board that I'm on now that I started on a couple of months ago, the Elmwood Valleys Community Leadership Board. I've been involved in the community leadership space before when we set up the Rivers and Rangers Community Leadership in sort of central Victoria. But with this board, We're looking to recruit extra board members and so I'm sort of using the process that I would usually use through my work because it's effective, it's worked really well so I know it's a good process. So we're starting six months out from the time that we're going to have our IGM and have our elections because that gives us Plenty of time to do the planning. So the first three months of that six months is around go back to basics, look at your skills matrix. What have we got around the table? What are the intentions of the existing board members? You know, who's perhaps their term is coming up or they're for personal reasons, they're deciding to step down. So knowing where you're starting from then of the people who will be continuing, what are their skill sets? What are their strengths? What do they bring to to the mix of expertise around the table? So then that obviously that highlights your gaps on your skills matrix that you then know these are the areas that we, we want to find people who bring those skills to us. So doing all that that preparatory work early on, so you've got plenty of time to speak to the existing board members, find out what their intentions are, and come up with a bit of a plan and some recommendations around what to do next. Mm-hmm. That all takes time, particularly when you you know you're on volunteer boards, not for profits. You know you might be a three or four million dollar organisation, but you still may only have half a dozen staff and you're running on the smell of an oily rag so it might be that you know the board members are much more hands-on around some of this this stuff then once you've, you've got that sense of what you need then we actually go out and start looking for it so yes you by all means use those traditional methods that I talked about before even sending out to your database putting it on your website putting on your Facebook page however you communicate with your stakeholders but I think you've got to do all those other things as well that I talked about the more proactive stuff so thinking as a board or as a recruitment subcommittee okay who do we know within our networks who might fit the bill here if you're a membership-based organization thinking about well do we have members that we know who've got some of these skills Otherwise, is it people who we can tap on the shoulder that, you know, I might know somebody through another organisation or through some of my social contacts, How how can we get that out? The other thing that I've been tapping into recently is corporate social responsibility programs. There's a few of the big corporates out there that have got programs where they support and encourage their people to link up with not-for-profits. Not-for-profits is sort of the area that I focus on, I guess, to link up with not-for-profit boards that are looking for skills-based board members. So one of those in particular, they hold events where they bring their people who've expressed an interest in wanting to contribute, It's funny, I call it speed dating for -for not-for-profits. So they have a little event where everyone does a pitch. You know, if I'm one of the professionals, this is who I am. This is my background. This is what my skill set is. And equally for the not-for-profits, they present about this is who we are. This is what we're looking for. This is our strategy, purpose, mission, those sorts of things. So people can get a bit of a feel for who they are. In the short term that I've been referring people into this particular corporate, I've seen a lot of organisations getting success and, you know, having more people than they can actually have places for. So that's great because, I mean, how often does that really happen? Absolutely. That's music to the ears. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So really thinking about what you need, identifying your gaps, really throwing that net really widely, both with your own stakeholders and then being proactive in a range of other networks. Oh, are you still in the middle of it for Alpine Valley? Have you completed the...
1: Yeah, we're only just really started. So at the moment, I'm sort of putting feelers out with the corporates and, you know, we need to sit down and do a thorough review of our, our skills matrix. So we're really at the early stages.
0: Okay. Can I nip back to Alexandra Health? Because you talked there about once you'd done those steps, there was a really thorough process. Maybe I misunderstood, but I took to be about maybe it was around the um, shortlisting and the interview process
1: and so on. Is that right? Yeah. So we had, with the help of the Department of Health, they collected all the inquiries and the expressions of interest. So we received the ones that were deemed suitable and then we were able to go through that and do a proper process of, you know, as a subcommittee, shortlisting those based against a, a scoring system, working out who would be the best fit for the places that we had and the skills that we were perhaps lacking in our skills matrix And then we gave that feedback of who we would like to interview to the department and then they let those people know and and we set up interviews with them and went through that process of a good proper recruitment process as you would with staff that also includes doing the all-important referee checking as well because after years of recruiting with state government, I learned uh, the hard way sometimes that what people tell you at interviews not necessarily what happened. So having someone who can actually verify that and talk to some of the things that they've talked about and you know enlarge upon what their role was in those in those things is really important.
0: And so in that one for that organisation, how many did you interview? So, well, how many roles were there? How many did you sh- shortlist and interview?
1: So I think back to the last time I was involved in recruiting for District Health, we had three positions to cover and I think we interviewed eight people that time. We actually took four because we knew from experience that even though you might go up to what you consider your maximum number at the time of recruitment, nine times out of 10, you'll lose someone for one reason or another throughout the year. And sometimes it might even be more than one person. So we thought that it was a good risk management strategy to actually, if you like, recruit above establishment, as we used to say back in the day recruiting staff, you know, recruit extra people so that you're covering yourself for that often inevitable loss along the way. So you don't get to the end of the board year and find that you've got a very small group of people who are governing the organisation and making those decisions. You touched on
0: referee checking, agree, totally important to do. Who does that? Is that the chair of the nominations committee uh, that does that? In that instance, who undertook the referee checks?
1: Yeah, so we did that uh, locally on our board, made those contacts and spoke to people and, and got that feedback. So, you know, we were lucky, I guess, in those instances that Everything came up as it should have, and there was there was no major issues there that people had misrepresented themselves at interview. But I think it's it's the ones that you don't check that thoroughly that slip through, and oftentimes they're the ones that you have the problems with, isn't it?
0: Absolutely, no. I think it's it's worthwhile. Even sometimes from referees, you learn even where people might develop best, where they or how they thrive
1: best. You learn all sorts of information. It's definitely worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that applies for even the smaller not-for-profits. I'd encourage people as much as they sort of think, oh, that's all that's governance-y stuff where it's all too hard. We just want to focus on what we do on the ground, the operational stuff. I just try to impress upon them. If you don't get the underpinning stuff right, it's going to impact and it's going to frustrate your operational, oh, your day-to-day absolutely. stuff. So, you know, if you can do it from the outset, make sure that the people you're bringing into your, your organisation to govern and direct your organization uh, good solid sensible people then you'll save yourself a lot of hassle down the track absolutely because you also can't well depending
0: on what the constitution of an organization says you can't necessarily sack a board member like you can a staff member it's diff- mm. it's a whole different ball game so mm. you definitely don't want to end up with the wrong person or worse people you know a group of people governing mm. an
1: organization yeah. Yeah, that's actually, you've just reminded me of another point that I think is really important in that succession planning, in the early phase, in that planning phase, is to go back to your constitution or your rules of association and look at what does that say around recruitment and numbers and tenure, all those sorts of things. I see more and more organisations, I'm sure you probably see this too, more and more organisations are building in limited tenure and perhaps multi-year term. So a common one I see is three by three. So we have a three-year term and we can do a maximum of three of those. It almost embeds that notion of having to succession plan because you know that you're not going to be there forever, but equally it takes the pressure off that people, you know, they're not still there 20 or even 30 years later thinking I can't leave because there's no one who will pick up the mantle when I go. So I think that that's really important too. Next time you do a review of your constitution, think about those sorts of things. Think about, well, how can we set our organisation up for that renewal and make it part of what we do? But equally, you know, it's it's a good trigger point. I find so many organisations that their constitution or their rules actually don't reflect the current practice. So they're out of date. They need a review. So it's a good trigger point if we can think about the succession planning to remind us to go back and just have a bit of a check over our rules. Do they meet our needs? Are they up to date? Do they reflect our current practice, particularly around, obviously, the recruitment of board members? Absolutely. When in doubt, check the rule book. (laughs) Yes.
0: Oh, Megan, so much just gold information in here. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today?
1: Look, I think as you sort of summarise those points, I think do it early, be proactive, go out and seek people out, don't wait for them to come to you. That's really important. And, you know, being committed to following the process through for the good of the organisation because. I guess the organisations that I've seen that do this well have such good results. They really consolidate a good, strong board going forward. They've got new, fresh people who've got great ideas and it just really reinvigorates the returning board members as well. And is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Yeah, look, I think my favourite resource is not-for-profit law through Justice Connect. They have so many awesome resources there. They've got guides for running companies limited by guarantee. They've got guides on just about everything you could imagine to do with governance. So I think they're a fabulous resource and I commend them to anybody who's involved in in not-for-profit governance to go and check it out, see what they've got there because I'm sure you'll be able to use a number of the resources that they have. Great. I think, yeah, it's an excellent website.
0: Agree wholeheartedly. Thank you, Megan. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your wisdom around succession planning and some of the stories around succession planning. I know the Take On Board community will get a lot out of our conversation today, so thank you for taking the time.
1: You're most welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been wanting to do this for a long time because I love your podcast and I think you, get, you have some fabulous conversations, so thank you.
0: So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.